702. The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist time with Dr. Chris Smith. Take your calls. 011-883-0702. The WhatsApp line. 072-702-1702. Doctor, how are you doing? You know, when I was in Cape Town, this chap who was driving me to one of my events said that his trick not to get stuck at the back of the queue for the cable car up to Table Mountain was to turn up with a stick and look like an old man. And all these lovely people like you would just say, please, go ahead. And he said, you get to the front of the queue and then just jump onto the cable car and by then it's too late for them to do anything about it. So if you see anyone doing that, you know you know who it is. You can scrag him. But don't don't make a mistake and get the wrong old fella. There we go. So so doctor, we we have to ask talk um start by talking about the bed bugs because I hear they they're by your house now there in the UK. Well, they might be. Um, oh, it's so those Paris, videos definitely gave Paris me has got big problems. Thrills. It gave um, me my skin is crawling looking at those videos. I'm traumatized. It's pretty grisly. Luckily, I've never had a brush with a bed bug. Although, when I was in America, I went to a conference in Chicago and I met this lady there who'd gone to the same conference and she said, look at this. And she turned her head as though you were looking over your right shoulder and down the left-hand side of her neck was this array of big red blotches. And I said, oh, goodness me, what, what attacked you? And she said, these were bed bug bites. And I said, ah, how do you know that? And she she held up this book and she said, because I've literally just written the book about bedbugs. And she was there to promote her new book all about bedbugs. And she had been bitten in her hotel. And this is happening increasingly. We're seeing more and more people who are getting attacked in, in hotels. And part of the reason is that A, we're all traveling more, but B, we're in the post DDT era. Historically, we had really good insecticides that were terrible for the planet and horrible for bedbugs, but really good for for keeping these sorts of pests under control. Mm. But as we move into a period of more responsible stewardship of the planet and we've stopped using many of these evil substances, the bedbugs and other insects have made a bit of a comeback. In fact, they've made a big comeback. And what they've also done is to become resistant to the things we do have to try to treat them with. So we're increasingly seeing infestations and we're seeing infestations where we go. Because when people go to hotels and things, best lesson, never put your luggage on the floor because bedbugs will crawl into anything they can hide in. They go across the floor and if you leave your luggage open and on the floor, it's much easier for them to get in and one pregnant female will very quickly produce enormous numbers of offspring and then they'll be invading your home because you'll take your suitcase home or to the next hotel you go to. And researchers, including that the, the lady I mentioned had written about this in her book, researchers have now got the genetic codes of the bed bugs and they can show how they've made a pilgrimage down the east coast of America. And they can show how they're all genetically related, how one youth hostel infected the next. Oh. Sounds like a legal action waiting to happen. But now Paris has got big problems. And so if you're thinking of planning a sojourn to Paris, think very carefully about take some insect repellent, stay in a posh hotel, keep your luggage off the floor and uh, possibly wash all your stuff carefully and don't bring your suitcase straight into the home when you get home. Leave it outside for a day or so so that they hopefully will vacate the premises and you don't infest your house. I unfortunately have come into contact with bed bugs in my early 20s during the um, traveling Europe and doing the hostel thing. And I came home itchy with these little things on me and my mom was like, where were you sleeping? Like, 
that you have these things on you. What I can't understand is, can we just say because people are not washing their sheets, that's the reason they, they're there? Is it that simple? No. And uh, bedbugs, although they're called bedbugs, because most of the time that we fall victim to them is when we are in bed, they don't live in the bedding so much as everywhere in your bedroom. And they'll find nooks and crannies. They like the, the wooden frame of your bed. They'll go around behind your bedside table. They want to be close to the food source. In, in that respect, they're a bit like us. They want an all-you-can-eat buffet on tap. And they come out at night when the temperature drops and they use heat and the smell of us to find us. They can pick up on the carbon dioxide we breathe out and other volatile chemicals that ooze out of us. And they track us down using those uh, sort of lures, if you like. And then they bite a hole in you, feast on you, and then go back to their home to digest the blood. And the giveaways, you might get little spots of blood on the bed sheets. That's when you know you might have been Ew. bitten by a bed bug, but it's not necessarily in your bedding. So even if you wash your bedding and change it all, the bed bugs will still be lurking somewhere and they come out and get you. Oh, Yo, I'm so grossed out. I'm so grossed out. Okay, thank you so much for that explanation. We're taking uh, your calls, your questions on WhatsApp line 011-830-702, the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. Question from Heidi. Dr. Chris Smith, how do you deal with flat earthers? Well, I invite them to have a meeting with people from all around the world to consider. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, this is an important point. And the thing is that we live in an age where we have at our fingertips access to all of the endeavours of mankind ever on, on the Internet and various resources like Wikipedia and so on. And there's no excuse for people to remain ill informed these days. But. The other thing on the internet is there's a lot of misinformation and it's very easy to seduce people who don't necessarily know better with false information. So the key thing is that if you, if you, even if you don't know everything is to know how to spot BS. And a, a good friend of mine at the University of Cambridge, he's written a great book on this called Sander van der Linden and he dubs it mental immunity. And if you learn nothing else, it's learn how to spot the rubbish, how to spot the fake facts and the fake news and the seductive things that are sounding too good to be true. They probably are too good to be true. When you learn to spot things like that, just by asking a few simple questions, what's the evidence for this? Is this mm. really credible? What? How do you know that that's the case? If you ask those sorts of questions, a person who's telling you something that's got veracity to it should be able to justify it, and there should be a good evidence base. Most of these claims and things are just are just not. And the flat Earth people are a product of the way that social media works, where it is programmed to go and find people who agree with the sentiments that you express online, and find more people who are aligned with your values so that before you know it you've got an appreciative audience of people who agree with you and in the past that's how we proved that something was true unfortunately we've short-circuited that situation and made it so that people now end up being convinced that their harebrained idea is right because there are loads of other people who previously would have been so diluted out by reason in the population that they're now brought together and they reach critical mass like a nuclear chain reaction and it all goes bang I think you answered that really well because I'm like, I thought you were going to say, I just ignore the flat earthers. Uh, but yes, show them the science. Uh, here's a question that comes through saying, how do airplanes fly upside down if it's the shape of the wings that make them fly? 
It's quite right that it is the shape of the wings that make them fly. And just very briefly how that works, if you look at an aircraft wing, it is curved downwards, so the front edge is higher than the back edge. And as the plane goes through the air, air is pushed as it travels under the wing downwards. And so if you push air downwards, the air pushes on you in an equally hard way in the opposite direction, upwards. So you get lift from the bottom of the wing and as air goes over the top of the wing, because it's curved, air is pulled down onto the curved surface of the wing. That's called the coander effect. And if you pull air downwards, it pulls you upwards equally high, hard. So that's how you get lift from the plane flying in the normal orientation. If you flip the plane over, watch what the pilot has to do to keep the plane flying. They have to adopt what's called a really fierce angle of attack. The plane will be flying along with the nose really high. And the reason for doing this is even though the wing is now curving in the wrong direction, by adopting that bizarre flying attitude, you've still got the front edge of the wing higher than the back edge of the wing. So you're still net pushing enough air backwards and downwards to get a push upwards and forwards off the wing to maintain lift and keep the plane airborne. It is incredibly inefficient to fly like that, and you're going to use loads of fuel and not go very fast, but you will fly nonetheless. Thank you so much for that question. We've got a voice note. Afternoon, let me please ask the naked scientist, is it possible or is it possible that humans can undergo parthenogenesis? Okay, um, the question concerns a thing called parthenogenesis, and this is where an egg can fertilize itself. So in other words, if you take an animal that is a much simpler animal, like some reptiles can do this, and the egg has no sperm to fertilize it, the egg can, under certain circumstances, duplicate its genetic material and effectively make a clone of itself. And so you end up with a fertile offspring, you end up with an, an animal being born, which has a, a full set of chromosomes, but it's effectively genetically identical to its, its other parent. This can happen in simple animals. Could we do this in people? Well, we couldn't because we're, we're genetically probably too complicated to make that happen. That said, scientists have managed with stem cell technology now to persuade adult cells to turn themselves into sperm cells and egg cells in the dish and they've been able to fertilize those cells with the, um, the the gametes that they've made and then produce viable offspring. And this is in mammals. They've done it in simple animals like mice so far. So the evidence is you probably could force this to happen in the test tube somehow with stem cell biology, but would a human spontaneously do what reptiles and some birds can do and undergo parthenogenesis? Probably not. The reason that this has evolved is, and a famous example of this is the Komodo dragons that live uh, in Indonesia. And the reason that they do this is that if an egg were to wash up on a, a shoreline and there was just one animal, and it was a so female that could lay some eggs, then if it couldn't clone itself, then it wouldn't be able to have any more dragons. Where when it undergoes this parthenogenesis, it will produce an offspring which is a genetic clone of itself of the same sex chromosomes, that will produce a male. And so you've then got a male and a female together, so you could start a new family and have uh, proper sex and genetic diversity again. 
Yeah, that was a hectic question. I've learned something new completely today. Here's another voice note. Hi, Arle Question for Dr. Chris. What controls the flow of blood to the male organ during an erection? Does a prostate play a role in measuring how much blood gets pumped in and pumped out after an erection? KK Pretoria. The answer to this one, uh, I suppose, a delicate question, is that you have inside the male member erectile tissue. And this is a bit like spongy tissue that has a big capacity and can increase its volume when you allow blood to flow into it so it can stretch and fill up, a bit like a balloon that you can inflate. And the blood vessels that feed in are under the control of the nervous system and specifically your autonomic nervous system. This is the part of or branch of the nervous system that controls unconscious or subconscious things that you don't have to worry about. Things like your blood pressure or how active your intestines are or how fast your heart is beating. And upstream of that nervous system will be the various psychological inputs Am I with someone I like? Is there a circumstance in which I'm feeling aroused? When those sorts of signals are fed into that part of the nervous system, including sensory information from touching and so on, this activates the right part of the nervous system to open up the blood vessels that allow blood to flow in. So more blood flows in than can get out. And this causes that erectile tissue called the corpus cavernosum to inflate or fill with blood and you achieve a state of tumescence. And when this goes away, you restrict the flow of blood again through narrowing down the arteries, feeding the penis, and then the blood flows back out, and then you've got more blood flowing out than in temporarily, and so things calm down again. Thank you so much for that question. Let's go to Ruada. Rueda. Hi, Rueda. Hi. Um, Good afternoon, Dr. Chris. I wanted to know, uh, you know, there's now shortage of eggs because of the millions of chickens that had to be caught because of this, whatever it's called, virus thing. What if we eat a chicken that perhaps was infected with this virus? Does it affect the human body? Um, there are a number of viruses that affect birds. And the one we, we worry about most, especially at the moment, is bird flu or avian influenza. And there's been a huge outbreak around the world going on for several years of H5N1 avian influenza. And this can be lethal for birds. But because flu is quite a fragile virus, if we were to cook the chicken, and you should always cook chicken properly because chickens can carry a number of other infections, including bacterial infections like Campylobacter and Salmonella, because they can be therefore transmitted in poorly cooked chicken to people, you must always cook chicken thoroughly. Flu is very fragile, and so when you cook the chicken and therefore render it safe from the perspective of Campylobacter or Salmonella, you also will destroy any influenza particles that are there. So it wouldn't post any, pose any threat to you. It's more likely to be a threat to the farmer who has close contact with the birds than it is to you as the person who buys and immediately cooks the chicken. Thank you so much, uh, Rueda, for that question that has come through. Here's another voice note. Access to How do we know, hi, Dr. Chris, how do we know that... Venus is upside down and recently I learned that is it Saturn or Uranus and one of them is 
rotating at a tilt of like 98 or 92 degrees something like that and i was just baffled by us considering them upside down based on what what is the criteria like is because we know our poles and we have decided which ones north and south based on all your scientific stuff but i would really like to know like all the other planets what makes them upside down how do we not or how do we know that the north pole of venus is actually not south and it's not upside down I hope my <laughs> yeah how do we know clear. that um Thank Venus you so much. It's a straightforward one, and all the other planets are the wrong way around. The answer to this is just convention. We decided historically because of where the scientists were working back in the uh, early days. I mean, we're talking hundreds of years ago as people began to gaze skywards with telescopes and things. They, they decided what the north and what the south was, and that set the convention. And when we look at our solar system and ask, well, where are the planets? They're all going around the sun in a big set of circles which are all in a line lined up with the sun and this is because they all formed in a disc that formed around the waist of the forming sun as in w-a-i-s-t in the girth the middle of the sun and that ring around the sun of material rather like the rings of saturn were what gave rise to the planets we now have in our solar system and that's why they're all in a line but when the solar system first formed about five billion years ago everything was not where it is now things were still moving there was a much more chaotic organization and things began to bash into each other and some of the planets as they were forming suffered glancing blows or smashed into each other and formed a bigger planet in the process but one that might be in the case of uranus tipped over so it's instead of uh, north south it's effectively tipped over so north is where west is and you're quite right venus seems to rotate the wrong way and very slowly so a day on venus is longer than a year which is bizarre and takes a bit of getting your head around but that's probably again a reflection on the uh, very chaotic arrangement of the early solar system when it was putting itself together five billion years ago oh you guys do a lot of work, Dr. Chris Smith. I have the utmost respect for you, as always, to know all of the things that you do. We're back together next week, Monday.